Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thanks for listening. On this edition of Restoring the Soul, Michael welcomes back our good friend, Wynn Collier. If you admire the life and writings of Eugene Peterson, you're in for a real treat today. As you'll soon hear, Eugene was not only Wynn's pastor, but he was his friend. So it made complete sense for Wynn to take on the humbling task of writing the authorized biography of Eugene Peterson, titled A Burning in My Bones, which was released this past January. Now, Wynn is also the Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Christian Imagination at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He's the director of the Eugene Peterson Center and author of five books, including the biography. Now, you can discover even more about Wynn at winncollier.com. So, without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Well, Wynn Collier, welcome back to the Restoring the Soul podcast. You are tied with three other people for the most appearances on the Restoring the Soul podcast. <laughs> um, two other people have been three times. So if you pay me enough money after this, then I'll get you back on four and you can add that to your resume. Fantastic. I want to congratulate you. Um, you have you have completed and the book has been released uh, by Waterbrook, the publisher, A Burning in My Bones, the authorized biography of Eugene H. Peterson, um, who, of course, most people know is the translator of the message. But Eugene was a dear friend to you. He was. He became a dear friend. He, For many years, I just thought of him as my pastor, and that was mostly over letters. But in the years of writing this, he, he definitely became a dear friend. Can you tell the story about how you met? I think you might have uh, touched on this in one of the previous conversations, but we'll assume that the listeners to this podcast may or may not have listened to those. Well, 2000, I was a pastor at a small struggling church in the Denver area. It had had uh, several splits, and I had all kinds of zeal and energy about how we were going to revive this church, and I thought that I had most of the answers. And one Sunday after church, one of the elders came up to me and handed me a copy of 
Eugene's working the angles, the shape of pastoral integrity, and handed me a copy of it. And he said, when, I, I think you'll enjoy this. I now know what he meant was, when, I think you need this. <laughs> and I went home that afternoon, Sunday afternoon nap, and started to read and was only paragraphs in, and it just smote my heart. I think I'd been looking for a long time for uh, a voice that could describe for me what it actually meant to be a pastor, and and that's what Eugene did. So I began to write him letters. My first book was published by one of his publishers, and I twisted an editor's arm to give me his address. I thought I was doing something unique by writing him and having him write me back. Years later, I would have literally thousands of his letters in my cellar as I was doing research for the biography and realized that I wasn't unique at all. And we wrote letters. I met him once in Juneau, Alaska, when he and his son Eric were speaking at a small church, Presbyterian church, for a spiritual renewal weekend. And I had a friend who went to that church and invited me to come. And so he and I had breakfast and and then I met him a time or two, and, and then in 2016, was in Montana and seeing him for the last time, I thought, and on the way back to Virginia from, from Montana, I, I was just thinking about his life and how someone was going to write his story, and I started thinking about how I hoped that story would be written and how I hoped it wouldn't be written, and I ended up writing him a letter, talking to him about all of that knowing that the last thing in the world he was interested in was having a biography written. A couple of weeks later, he called me up on the phone. And he said, Wayne, let's talk about this. And so I just basically reiterated what I'd written in the letter. And, and I said, Eugene, does this make you tired or give you energy? And he said, Wayne, makes me tired, which is what I would have expected. And I thought the conversation would just end then. But for some reason, we kept talking. And a few minutes later, he said, Wayne, I, I'm getting energy now. And I think you're supposed to do this. So he just welcomed, he and Jan welcomed me into their life and world, and off it went for the next four years. And you really had complete access to his life, to his family, to the people that uh, knew him from both the present and the past. And uh, in the on the dust jacket uh, of the book, which, by the way, is a beautiful hardback appropriate biography sized because you know when i see a tiny biography i i'm like nah i won't read that but it's really just beautiful but on the dust jacket introduction there's the story of how the very first time you went to their home in montana and you walked beneath the house into the cellar can you tell that story yeah so he he led me down and it it's it's um facing the lake there's a screen door that creaks and you walk in, and it's it's like walking into an old Italian grotto or something, a, a den. It's it's rock and gravel in there, and uh, bookshelves just piled of all his all of his books. And and the funny thing was, there was uh, mice all over the place, uh, <laughs> mice droppings and and mice traps, and uh, it was really hilarious because. There was like 10 or 15 copies of his hardback, uh, Eat This Book, and the edges were literally gnawed away by the mice, so they were taking it quite <laughs> literal. And just in that cavernous space, there were two tall uh, black metal uh, filing cabinets 
stuffed full of letters, notes, manuscripts, um, articles, just endless, and and then boxes after boxes of of notes and and uh, manuscripts from teaching and regent and book sermon notes from the previous three and four decades. And I was just down there for hours at a time and uh, trying to figure out how in the world am I going to get this stuff back to Virginia and trying to sort it there. And I ended up that first night, I had to rush to to Staples before they closed into Kalispell, you know, 30 minutes away to to get this box, these boxes mailed back because I did, had no idea how I was going to get them from Montana to Virginia. But ended up with all this stuff then back at my house and spent the next year and a half sorting, beginning to read before I even began to write. And uh, it was so funny. I would I would walk up upstairs and and I would have been down for a long while and Eugene would just say, when did you find anything interesting? <laughs> and I, I just like, I sure did, Eugene. He had, he had no idea really. Well, and at one point, didn't he say, I don't know why anyone would find this interesting? Absolutely. He thought his life was so plain and ordinary. He didn't know what would be fascinating about his story. Well, that's the paradox of Eugene Peterson is that his life was plain and ordinary, right? I mean, he lived in his boyhood house and never owned a big glitzy home. I was at their apartment in Vancouver right next to Regent College, and they just they were very, very uh, simple and committed to a, a community uh, in the churches they served and then at the university. But the impact and the breadth of his life is just just tremendous. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he he just he wanted to love the people around him. He wanted to live a quiet life. He wanted to do his work. He wanted to spend his his hours in prayer and with his family and taking hikes and uh, eating good food. And uh, yeah, so it, it was simple, even though he, he crossed so many fascinating people and, and did so many fascinating things. So what was it like when you got back to Virginia where you were living at the time and you started unpacking those boxes and you said it took you a year and a half just to organize it and get through it? Here's a man who by then he was in his early 80s and you've got all the content of sermons and correspondence. And I mean, what was it like for you? You're a friend, you're a pastor, and you're going to be writing his biography and on so many levels – even emotionally, what was that like? Well, I kept pinching myself, to be honest with you, as a writer, just to have this opportunity. I, I couldn't, I couldn't have dreamed it up. I also was a little terrified. You know, once the euphoria passed, and I actually had all this material literally just piled around me, and I thought, "What have I done? You know, how, how can I do this? I don't. I didn't have a research assistant. I didn't have anybody to help me. It was just me." And then I think there was some trepidation, particularly going into his journals, because one thing I was really committed to, and I, and I know Eugene would have been as well, was for this to be a truthful story. You know, one of the concerns sometimes about authorized biographies is that, is that they can tend toward hagiography, as if the subject is a client that has to be satisfied. And that was never – Eugene never asked any questions about content or to see anything ahead of time, or gave any kind of stipulations. No one in his family ever did. I mean, Jan, if anyone, was the most the one most in, most um, concerned whenever she let me take her 
her 30 journals back with me. Uh, she would call me. She called me like a month later and said, I'm feeling very uneasy about this. You know, <laughs> you have all my journals at your house and you're reading things that I I'm not sure I want other people to read. Um, but that, yeah, there was like, am, am I going to find something in 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 reading Eugene that that he wasn't he wasn't the person we thought he was? And, you know, he, he was very meaningful to me. And certainly, you know, all of us are very familiar now with uh, so many reasons why to, to distrust public figures. Uh, we find out that their life wasn't what we thought, but he was far from perfect and the story doesn't shy away from that. But I can still say it was such a joy to discover that in his deep heart, uh, behind the scenes, Eugene was the man we thought he was. Yes, yes. And I thought part of the artistry of your book is that you took all of those issues head on. And let me just say for listeners, there's no big scandal in the book. Um, you know, Eugene was not a communist or, you know, a secret atheist <laughs> or anything like that, that, that he really was uh, in every way the man that he appeared in public. But one of the themes from early on was the way that he wrestled with self-doubt. And, you know, as a, as a teenager, more awkward and, and shy, um, and even how, you know, he met Jan and there was another relationship, but that, uh, he excelled at running where he was, a basically a national competitor, um, in, was it the quarter, uh, the mile? Yes, that's right. The mile. And he raced Roger Bannister, the, <laughs> the man who broke the, the four minute mile. And, that's right. Um, came in as he, I think you said, pretty miserably behind him, but he he competed with him. That's right, and that's actually a funny thing because somewhere along the way, and he couldn't even trace it, the myth arose that he almost beat Bannister. And this story is told all. I mean, I heard. I can't tell you how many times I heard this from different circles, and I would, and I would come back to Eugene, and he, was, and he would just laugh, and he would say that. That's ridiculous," he said. "I was so far behind him. It was a it was an, an expedition before um, a, a big international competition, and uh, he loved he loved racing him, but he he was nowhere near beating him." There were some other interesting things just kind of along the way. I was like, I did not know that, but Eugene and Pat Robertson, who went on to found the Seven Hundred Club, they were close friends through seminary. That's right. Yeah, he. Pat was new to faith and was very much uh, being caught up in the um, sort of charismatic renewal that was happening at the time, and and you know, New York City was a hotbed for all that, and and they they had a, a Pentecostal prayer meeting that, ha- that happened at the seminary that several of them arranged, and yeah, they were they were very close on the same trajectory for a little while, and then went in two very different directions, you know, P- Pat. Um, as public and celebrity as one can get with uh, a big TV station and later running for president. I think that was 1980 or somewhere in the 80s. And Eugene kind of committed through all of his ministry to uh, being anonymous and, and out of the way and really fighting against celebrity. That's right, which makes for such an interesting story that he ha- ended up being as well known as he did because he he really did resist it. Through the book and through Eugene's life, there's these major themes. And one of those themes is how Eugene came to see the Bible as having a conversation and reading the Bible and studying the Bible was a conversation. And that may be a new idea to many people. 
and maybe even people that have only read a few of Eugene's books. But can you unpack that, what that meant for him, that the Bible was a conversation? Well, everything about the spiritual life is relational. And in the modern world, we've often learned to read books primarily for information. And so we then transport that over to the Bible and we think well, we're to, to, to read the Bible primarily to get facts or moral truths or tidbits of wisdom for living, all of which often can, can be available in certain forms. But, but Eugene insisted that the Bible comes in conversation with God, that God is the one who speaks first and then we respond. And so that's why he would even call prayer answering speech. Because prayer is not does not start with us. Prayer starts with God. And so scripture is is the place where we don't come just to find information, where we don't come just with our preconceived ideas and then we're expecting scripture to somehow meet our questions exactly as we've framed them or the um the knowledge that we think we need exactly as as we envision it. But rather, it is a way of hearing and being present with God. And so Scripture is itself the revealing of Jesus Christ. It is the encounter with Jesus Christ. And that opens Scripture up into a much wider world of what's happening in this, this holy book and what's happening in us as we're, as we're engaging it. And that that encounter with Jesus Christ is as much in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Absolutely. It is, it is all of the scripture is revealing Christ and encountering Christ and bringing Christ to us. You know, one of the places where I have seen that again and again in his writing, and I'm hoping someday that there will be a book of just Eugene Peterson's um, introductions to the 66 Protestant books of the Bible. Because oh, there is. There, there is a book yeah, of just I think, those introductions. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Nav Press has put that out, yeah. Okay, because it's a wonderful commentary, like mm-hmm. just his commentary on the Bible, as short as it is. But um, about a year ago, I was deep in Isaiah, and after being a believer for many, many years, I, I went, I don't think I've ever read the book of Isaiah from beginning <laughs> to end. So I always start with uh, the message, and I keep going back to his introduction to Isaiah, where it just talks about the salvation work of God. And if you didn't know, it was the Old Testament, you would you would just think he was doing commentary on a New Testament book and mm-hmm. talking about Jesus. But he had the eyes to see as he read the scriptures that Jesus was right there in the Old Testament. That's right. And, you know, some of that, I think, became because he was so steeped in the church fathers and mothers. You know, this is the way Christians read the scriptures for so long. And um, so I think I think for him, he just seamlessly moved from from Old Testament to New Testament, to, between genres, expecting it to be as varied and as alive as the multiple kinds of friends you would have in a conversation. You know, today we tend to, as as pastors, me as a pastoral counselor, as as thought leaders, we tend to gravitate toward either kind of the most popular book or maybe the most popular book from a short time ago. But his life, uh, he really, to use a word that you use, he eschewed those modern thinkers for the most part and really was steeped in the early church fathers and mothers and 
Um, and then when he did look at any of the more modern people, and I'm, I'm talking about 20th century, earlier 20th century, that he went back to the original sources and read through them. But talk about how his lens really was historical and tied in to the early church. Well, you know, walking into his, his study at their Montana home and just I, I took my little camera one day and I just filmed all of all of the books in his library. And the the breadth and the width of his reading is unbelievable. Um, he, he just had this uh, sponge-like curiosity that would soak up and then integrate. He, he, he really um, used the word integration a lot to, to try to integrate these things in, into his life. And so he, he read um, as an act of prayer. He had conversations with everyone from you know Gregory of Nyssa, St. Teresa of Avila to Bart to Dostoevsky in his latter 10 to 15 years, he would say he's re- he read more fiction than theology. I mean, partly because he'd read so much theology, but also because he thought that that, that the, the poets and the novelists were were offering us something that that we needed. But it was all all part of one story. So he could read something from the third century and something from the 21st century, and he saw it as one long conversation of of God with with the world, God, with his people. And it did keep him from, I mean, he was always open to new uh, interpretations and, and understanding new, new lens and seeing new angles. But he was always going back to how most of what we hear now we've heard before, and this has been wrestled with before, and there, there is wisdom to, to, to glean and, and bring forward in, into now. And all of this um, made him, along with just who he was, a very different kind of pastor where he would, without his fame from his books, he would be kind of written off as an irrelevant today in terms of his leadership style and what he believed the pastorate was about. So talk a little bit about that. You know, it, and what you're describing is certainly true. However, that seems more like an indictment on us, to be honest with you, because yes. his assumption was to be a pastor meant you were a pastor with the people right in front of you, that your primary thought isn't trying to build something that isn't there yet, that your primary motivation isn't to just gather a crowd, but that to pastor people meant to be part of their stories to know their pains, to know their names, to know their heart. It meant to belong to a place. It meant to be a pastor in Bel Air, Maryland, was not exactly the same as being a pastor in San Francisco, California, or Portland, Maine. It meant that that it required a long season of common, ordinary often even boring work that is always enlivened by the fact that God is doing something that you may not even see. And so the twin evils that he thought American pastors struggled from was ambition and boredom. And he thought those were the things that would destroy a pastor more than sex or alcohol was this idea of 
building something in God's name but really doesn't have much to do with God, and then boredom, this this addiction to needing stimulus that ran roughshod over common grace, common work, common life. Not that there wouldn't be extravagant moments of resurrection and, and glory and beauty, but that visiting the hospital and sitting in your study with someone whose marriage is falling apart and wrestling through a text because you knew that God had something to say, even though you didn't know how it would end or what what would come of it, that that's the work of the pastor. And that a lot of what passes for pastoral leadership these days is little more than ambition, boredom, marketplace ideas baptized in the name of Christ. Yeah, and that's not to uh, impugn any particular movement or particular church, but that's unique. That's Eugene's unique lens that he really believed to be uh, the the historic biblical unfolding of what the pastorate meant. It's really he was a he was a shepherd. Absolutely, and he wasn't a polemicist. I mean, he wasn't um, he wasn't trying to tear anything else down. But if you ask him how he understands being a pastor, then he's going to tell you. And there was something that he did – he was concerned about, um, that he felt like there was something happening, particularly in the American context, where we were losing sight of the most basic ideas of what it means to be the church and means to be a pastor to, in a church because we were being overwhelmed by uh, leadership techniques, structures, ideas, assumptions – that we were attaching Bible verses to, but we're not coming out of the deep wisdom of Scripture. And there's that tension with how I've I've known a lot of leaders of uh, really large churches, what we might call megachurches, and how you know to to develop an organization or a church to be big like that, you do have to have a lot of uh, leadership, strategic kinds of issues. But then inevitably, those pastors will at some point say. Man, I just hunger to hear people like Eugene Peterson, who are older, who have cultivated a life of depth and spirituality. And you even referred back to when you were a young pastor, how you read Working the Angles, and I think you said it smoked you. He wrote in a way that was different. Um, his books were not sexy or exciting and filled with wonderful latest great anecdotes, but they were compelling. And they were they were deep. So, can you talk about what it was that working the angles, how how that book smoked you, and then how you've listened or heard other pastors say that his books were disruptive or reorienting? You know, I really think at the deepest core, what we're encountering in his books is the fruit of a deep, abiding, long life with God. And that's just not something that can be taught in a, in a writing class or that's just not about skill, well-honed. That, you know, there, there are people who have gone to deep interior places of the soul with, with God and out of that place emerges wisdom that they're able to offer. And I think it is that in, sort of intangible 
thing that we're most recognizing. I mean, certainly he was plain spoken. He he had this this these eyes to see, and he was writing out of his own context. I think that's another really important thing. He was he was he was writing something that was that was literally uh, uh, brewing in his own heart, and he felt these tensions. It wasn't as if he was just um, a contemplative who never struggled with ambition and boredom himself. He he's he tasted the poison, and he saw how destructive it was to his own soul. And I think he was able to clearly see its destruction to many of us. And so when he spoke that word, it was also timely in that he was speaking to something that many of us hadn't really been able to name yet, but we felt its impact. And I think when Eugene put language to it, and then given the fact that he he really was a he a writer's writer. I mean, he knew he knew the way of sentences and language and and the holiness of words. And so when you pull all these things together, it it just uh, it pierces. Speaking of being a writer's writer, it's stunning to me how he spent so much time reading and how he spent a very significant intentional amount of time in prayer and how he's so prolific. Uh, it's just it's just so rare. It's almost as if, you know, he lived two lifetimes and there's a great deal of intentionality. I remember in the contemplative pastor, the simple sentence, uh, a very original person must shape their life in a certain way to basically achieve the outcomes. And it didn't feel strategic when he said that. It just kind of felt like, oh, here's this thought that I've learned about what needs to happen. And um, I I finished your biography of Eugene, and I thought one of my first thoughts was, I can't spend as much time on social media and, and watching TV for relaxation <laughs> as I want to. If I, if I am going to... Uh, kind of bear the fruit that I want to bear because you have to say no to a lot to be able to say yes. Uh, how many books did he write approximately? It was, it was close to 60, if not over. Um, the number I was able to come up with was 29 or 30. Okay. And then there's yeah. all the spinoffs, like right. you know, the the message this and the message that. And yeah, that's that list gets really long. Yeah, like uh, the contemplative pastor hip hop version and those <laughs> those kinds of things. <laughs> we we know how publishers can do that. That's right. Um, one of my favorite books is um, a little book called Living the Message, which is a spinoff, but it's a it's a, a three hundred sixty five day devotional where there's just a a simple thought from scripture. But of course that that probably takes it up over sixty. Talk about your work at the Eugene Peterson Center, because you've made a shift about a year ago where you moved from being uh, a, a pastor in Charlottesville at All Souls Church to now you're in Holland, Michigan at Western Seminary. So talk a little bit about how that happened and what you're doing. Well, it was surprising to us. I had every intention of retiring from All Souls. It's a church we helped to, f- to found and, and love dearly. However, this uh, this moment feels like a culmination of so many things. I, have, I did my PhD work at the University of Virginia studying Wendell Berry's uh, uh, fiction. And then I had this deep heart for this question of what, you know, what does it mean to be a faithful pastor in our time? And 
I care a lot about uh, words, and being a writer is a core part of my vocation and has been for 20 years. And to be able to combine all of this while continuing a conversation of of Eugene, that Eugene began and that I think we need to continue just feels like it's all these threads coming together. And so in August, we moved to Holland, Michigan. We're helping to form the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination. And our hope there is to, to continue conversations among pastors, among creatives, among what I'm thinking of as curious but often befuddled Christians who found Eugene to be a, a wise, sage voice. And uh, we want to create conversations in those three uh, arenas and and not to build a, a monument to Eugene at all. I mean, in fact, nothing would be more dishonoring to who he was and his, his heart than to do that. But to say that he bore witness to, to God's action in the world in a way that is startling and ordinary and beautiful and hopeful and that we want to – we want to bear witness in the same way. So it's it's a creative time with lots of possibilities. We're starting two Doctor of Ministry programs. One is is called the Holy Presence, Eugene Peterson and the Pastoral Imagination. The other one's called the Sacred Art of Writing. We're looking at starting some circles of conversation among those groups that I, I talked about. We're looking at starting a, a gathering, perhaps a podcast. So at this point we have our tool tool belts on and just trying to build something that is relational and hopeful and quiet, um, but filled with hopefully with a, a prayerful posture of, of delight in God and expectation and what God is already doing in the church. And so your role there is to develop that center. You're also teaching traditional seminary courses, including Christian imagination and Peterson's work, but also you're working with doctoral students. And I just think it's it's incredible that the seminary is thinking in such out-of-the-box ways, you know, for such a time as this, as you talked about uh, befuddled Christians of how do I make sense out of all the cultural changes and, and what's happening in the church, that there really is a anchor in the midst of that if we if we think rightly about it. So when a couple more things I want to just unpack, but you said that it's the Center for Christian Imagination. What did Eugene mean by Christian imagination and why is that important? He said to me in the brief time I spent with him, I asked him about this and he goes, his only answer was as if I would perfectly understand this and then have no more questions. And I just scratched my head, but I pretended like I knew what he was talking about. I said, um, why is the imagination important? And he said, well, Michael, in faith, we're dealing with the invisible. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, the invisible. Okay. That's right. Uh, next subject. All right. But, well, what did he mean by that, and why is it important today? Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's important that, that he alluded to that word, that Hebrews imagery, because it, it is – imagination is having the eyes to see things that we would miss otherwise. And so – it kind of goes back to where our conversation began with talking about Scripture and what Scripture is and isn't in this conversation that Scripture is opening up to us the widest possible world, the widest possible reality, what it actually truly means to be human. For many of us, we've grown up with the idea 
probably would never put it this way, particularly those of us you know, like you and me who, are, who spend our life talking about these kind of things. We know better than to, to actually say this, but we live often as if Scripture is somehow confining our world. It's making it smaller. And even though we resist this secular, sacred dichotomy, we still somehow believe that to follow God and Jesus, to, to live in his word, is to somehow shrink away from what we think of as really being human. We have to limit all this human stuff in order to be like God. And Eugene uh, rightly resisted all of that, said that's nonsense, that to read scripture is to open up the widest possibility but it requires imagination to do that. Imagination doesn't mean just making stuff up in your head. It means learning the capacity, because we've let it atrophy, to see the wideness and the beauty of God's world as it truly is. So that as we're having this conversation now, it's not really just you and I chatting through these technological mediums, that God's Spirit is actually here doing something. I don't know exactly what it is. I may miss it, um, but... I live with this desire to see what God's doing. Trust that something is being birthed here that I can't know on my own. And then particularly in a, in a world that's steeped in rationalism as the only way to know truth, which is a very modern, narrow idea, to encounter uh, the wisdom of the church, the wisdom of the ancients, that would say, oh, actually, there's there's many ways that we come to learn the truth of God's world, but it requires imagination for that to happen. It's why we need the poets. It's why we need the novelists. It's why we need the carpenters. It's why we need uh, preachers. It's why we need farmers, um, because each one of us bring something that expands us and enlivens us and lets the Spirit of God cast new energy and new light on things that we would have missed if we weren't paying attention. Wow. Wish we could have a whole separate conversation on this because um, as a therapist, I often bump into conversations and people at stages in their life around vocation. So you just opened up a window to me on vocation, not as what's the right job for me to work at or where can I make the most money, but but where can I participate in bringing forth that reality? And that's, uh, as I think it was Buechner who said, the world's need in our deep joy, but toward the end of expanding that, that conversation. And I love how you said that imagination is not making things up or, or making up what's not real, but a way of actually seeing what's real. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then as a novelist or a poet creates, they're helping us to see and experience what's real. Yeah, in some ways I think of novelists and poets as the personal trainer for the brain. They, they're helping us to use muscles that we've uh, not exerted and they've, they've, they've sort of withered away. It's not because they're not real or true. It's because we haven't practiced. We haven't learned to see that way. Eugene read poetry widely, which you've already alluded to, and he often quoted poets from a wide a wide birth. But do you think that there will be a Eugene Peterson poetry book posthumously? He published one before he died. It's called Holy Luck. Right. Um, yeah, yes. that's right. And um, uh, 
in Subversive Spirituality, he inserted a number of those poems uh, around the Beatitudes because he thought luck was the word most translated to blessed, right? That's right. So he he finally got his the, – the uh, publishers didn't like him using that word. And so he finally snuck it in with his book of poetry. But you know, he was he was a little mixed on that because I don't I don't think he saw himself as a he wasn't convinced that his poetry was worthy of publication. So I think he was a little a little hesitant about about it. But at the same time, um, there's some really good poetry in there. So the last thing I'd like to ask you about is uh, Eugene's life of prayer, and I want to end here because I, I think it's most important. Prayer means so many things for so many people, and you already said that prayer was answering the the conversation that God already initiated. But the thing that struck me is that Eugene didn't have a quiet time every morning, so to speak, you know, where he did 20 minutes of reading scripture and then had an app where he prayed for certain people or something, nor did he just do 20 minutes of contemplative prayer, but that he stepped into kind of another reality where at times you describe him in the biography of being on his knees, rocking back and forth, like he was in um, almost like a rabbinic kind of prayer chant, and he covered himself with a prayer shawl, and other times he would just sit quietly in a chair in silence. So talk about what prayer meant to him, but also what it would look like to an outsider. You know, it's it's an interesting question, and I love that you're asking it because it's probably the question he was asked the most, which was describe describe for us your devotional life or your prayer life or your prayer practice. Most of the time, he was very resistant to answering the question directly, and the reason was was because he – didn't want to ever be understood as prescribing some kind of formula for someone else to follow. So, but at the same time, he was one of the most disciplined people I'd, I've ever been around. But it came fairly naturally to him. It wasn't, it wasn't hard for him. In fact, he also didn't love the word spiritual disciplines. He did. He he thought disciplines, in our parlance, um, often evoked self-effort and. He thought in our spiritual practices that we needed to lean away from self-effort and we need to lean far more onto God's initiative. But at the same time, because of his – the way he – I mean he he was very disciplined and so most of his life there was a morning, you know, morning hour or two where he would pray pray psalms, often have them memorized, often in Hebrew. He would read commentaries and other spiritual reading. He would sit in silence. But it is certainly true – that in time, his prayer became so expansive that it felt like it enveloped him. It it was something he became rather than something he did. And at the same time, there is no short circuit. Like we want a, a book that describes this for us and gives us a six-month plan that we can follow to have this kind of life. And I think it's grace. I don't. I don't have the kind of prayer life that Eugene did. I'm not sure I ever will. It, there's grace, and then there's also time. I mean, just long time to be shaped in a certain kind of encounter with God. So the way I most encountered his prayer, answering the question of what does it look like, was 
how it felt to be in his presence and the fact that oftentimes it felt like he was inviting me into God's presence in the plainest ways. And it had nothing to do with him, you know, saying, okay, now let's go to God's presence or even saying anything overtly spiritual. It, it was – my anxiety would slip away because I would realize that somehow I was encountering grace through Eugene that was God because I think Eugene was living a life at prayer. Whenever Eugene was asked, how can I learn how to pray, often Eugene's first response would be, well, tell me what you love. And then he would he would begin to think with that person, well, how can what you love become a prayer? Because that's where God is. God is in the midst of the things we most truly love. God is a source of love. And so there was this expansiveness um, that was concrete. It was always directed to God, but it was generative and free and hopeful. And and I, as I looked over his life, I think it would look different in different ways, different kinds of reading, spiritual reading that would be part of his prayer, different psalms, different, different seasons that he would memorize and pray depending on uh, where he was in the moment. But there probably is no word, no, no theme that is more central to who Eugene was than prayer because to him, again, prayer was massively expansive. It was a life lived, pointed to, and in conversation with God, and that was what he hoped would be every breath. Well, Wynn, thank you for taking the time to talk about uh, the biography, A Burning in My Bones, but it's a book that really stirred a hunger in me, and I, I commend this to any reader, whether you knew of Eugene Peterson's work or not. It's a book that will really stir uh, a desire to know God more deeply, and I just think you did an exceptional job with it. It's so flowing and colorful, uh, so filled with wonderful storytelling, and also just a kind of historical flow, too. I love the way that you put it together, starting out in his boyhood home. So um, can't wait for more and more people to learn about it. And we're also going to put the link to the work that you're doing at Western Seminary and the Peterson Center. We're going to post that for the podcast. But um, can't wait for you to come back for number four appearance on the <laughs> podcast. I look forward to it. Thank you. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. <music>